0: Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Monday. Uh, before we begin, uh, our guest from last episode, Z, has a podcast of her own. It's called Decode the News, and it gives context and background about basically where media comes from and the types of story that media tells when it's reporting the news. It is totally fascinating. This is what Z got her PhD in, and she does an amazing job of breaking down the tropes and the biases and the narratives and the everything behind journalism. As somebody who has lived in the journalism world for a while, I love it. Z is one of the smartest people I know. Search for Decode the News in the iTunes store, subscribe to it, review it, give her stars, give her awesome words, Uh, also do the same thing for this podcast as well. But yeah, Decode the News. Check it out. One of the biggest challenges that I have with this show, and in other venues when I've written or spoken about history for a popular audience, is the struggle between narrative and accuracy. I often find that when I'm writing an episode, I want to impose a familiar or satisfying narrative structure on a historical event, whether or not that event merits that narrative structure. Uh, for instance, in this series about fascist Italy, it's really tempting to impose the familiar narrative of the villain protagonist rise and fall on Mussolini. And you've probably seen this structure before of the rise and fall of a villain protagonist. Uh, Scarface is a good example. At the beginning of that film, Tony Montana is just some random dude in Florida. Then, as a function of his own cunning and cleverness, He climbs to the top and becomes a drug lord, a really, really important, powerful, dangerous drug lord, and everything seems awesome for him. But his time at the top, it is unsustainable. And then, usually because of some expression of hubris, the villain protagonist falls. Richard III also works in a pretty similar way, and one of my favorite versions of Richard III, the film version with Ian McKellen, really heavily leans on this structure. Uh, in that movie, Richard III is portrayed as a fascist. They basically made Richard a Nazi king of England. And at the midpoint of the movie, you have big rallies, you have his flags flying, you know, you have his banners unfurled and his troops arrayed in like these really crisp, terrifying formations. And then it all falls apart. And at the end of it, Richard is reduced to this guy who just seems like a thug, a guy who's getting his ass kicked in a battle and who would trade it all for a horse. But before that fall, you have to have a pinnacle for the villain to fall from. You have to raise him up before you crash him down in a narratively satisfying fashion. Now, obviously, real history does not follow a Hollywood three-act structure, but those narrative models can be interesting and compelling ways to tell a story. And they can make your audience more interested in the story. They can make the narrative all the more vivid and compelling. What's more, whenever I or some other history popularizer is talking about this sort of thing, we have to take into account that we and our audience are at a remove from the real events. And that remove, that takes away a bit of the emotional power that those events have. You know, we will never experience the subjectivity of people who actually saw the rise and fall of fascist Italy. But turning those events into a story, using those narrative structures to convey what those events were like, that can bring a little bit of that power back. And I'm saying this because I want you to realize that I'm doing this in this series— And I do this in all of my episodes, and most history popularizers do this. We take a structure that we know works, and then we mold the historical narrative around it. And you have to do that, because if you were to just present history in an undiluted stream of events, it would be incomprehensible. You know, the map that is the same size as the land that it maps is useless. A map must be made smaller it must delete things. A historical account must edit. A historical account must pick and choose what it presents and does not present. That's necessary. We all do it. Keep that in mind. And I want you to keep that in mind in this episode in particular, because I'm going to talk about how the fascist talked about history. I'm going to talk about how Mussolini and his guys told their story. How they interacted with ancient Rome and the Renaissance. And how they used the Italian past to cover themselves in glory. Quite a lot of glory. Uh, this episode is about monuments. It's about excess. It is about Mussolini trying to relate himself with the imagined glories of the past. With him all but saying that he was the like reincarnation of Augustus. And if you don't believe me... Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com and look at the picture for this episode. I imagine you're near a screen somewhere. You probably have one in your pocket. Get out your browser, look at the page, and do you see that? That is Mussolini's giant face on the side of fascist party headquarters in the 1930s. It's huge, it's stern, and it's horrifying. It makes fascist party headquarters look like the type of place where the Legion of Doom would hang out and try to kill Superman or something. So that's the level of hubris and that's the level of monumentalness that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a party and with a dictator that doesn't really have any upper limit in how grand they want to go. And a lot of that grandiosity, they're trying to legitimize with the past. So fascist Italy was obsessed with the Roman Empire. Under Mussolini, the Italian government oversaw Countless what they called restorations of Roman-era ruins and monuments. And it was much the same with Renaissance structures, though not to the same extent as classical structures. But these restorations were oftentimes restorations in name only. These restorations came at the cost of intellectual honesty. The fascist model for studying Italian history was one with an agenda as opposed to one that tried to take a comprehensive look at the past. Okay, I'm in a movie-referencing mood in this episode, so I want you to think about Indiana Jones. You've probably seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Picture that. Legitimate archaeologists don't go into a site looking for specific treasures. At the very beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indy passes a whole bunch of death traps and ancient machinery to get to a specific golden idol. There is one thing from the past that he's after. After that, he evades even more death traps and machinery to escape with his prize. A real student of history wouldn't do that. The more responsible and honest thing for Indiana Jones to do would be to study the traps, study the lost temple itself, study that thing that makes the giant spherical boulder go, study the situation that the golden idol was in. All of that context would yield a much better, more nuanced picture of the past that he was trying to delve into, rather than just storming in and looking for one specific thing. Now, when fascist Italy was rifling through the past, it was behaving kind of like an archaeologist looking for a golden idol. It was going to ignore all the context and all the other history around what it wanted to get at, and just go for that one thing. And in this case, the golden idol was imagined notions of past Italian glory. Roman and Renaissance ruins were prized. If there was some ancient Roman ruin from the high empire or some impressive Renaissance structure, Mussolini funded all manner of public works to excavate and renovate the structures from those eras. Most notably, the Mausoleum of Augustus in Rome. Here's a quote from an essay by Claudia Lazaro. She's a Cornell historian who wrote an essay called Forging a Visible Fascist Nation. And of the Mausoleum of Augustus, Lazaro writes, quote, A campaign from 1926 to 1938 liberated the Mausoleum of Augustus, the Emperor's ostentatious funeral monument, not only from the later accretions that completely obscured it, but also from the cramped urban setting that suffocated it, and from its living function as a concert hall. The excavation answered a number of questions about the monument, but only a ravaged core remained after the removal of the additions of the 12th, sixteenth and early twentieth centuries. Spiro Kostov has summed up the restoration process. The mausoleum that had been in more or less constant use for centuries was transformed into an authentic Roman ruin. Or, following Desibardici on nineteenth century restorations in Florence, we could say that what emerged was not the original itself, which was never entirely recoupable, but another, a double of the original. Unquote. That happened all over fascist Italy, with very specific items and artifacts from prized historical periods being lionized and other things being torn down. Monuments from other eras were not so lucky. Baroque architecture, for instance, was dismissed as effeminate and decadent, what with all its swirls and intricacies and bits of ornamentation. Uh, the Middle Ages were often a mixed bag. The fascists went either way when it came to medieval buildings. Some they liked and some they tore down. What's more, things from the Roman Republic and the later part of the empire were similarly torn down in favor of quote-unquote restoring things that reflected Roman or Renaissance glory. And I want to make it really clear that I'm not just talking about restoration or excavation here. Sometimes this went to a full-on reconstruction, with classical or Renaissance buildings getting constructed out of whole cloth, with elements that may or may not have any solid tether as to what had really existed in history. D. Medievalisansky, another Cornell historian, says in an essay called Towers and Tourists." Of particular interest throughout Tuscany was the elimination of the Baroque, a period considered to be antithetical to regime politics. The Baroque was perceived as both foreign and feminine in contrast to the Medivio, which was hailed not only as native, but also as masculine, with its imposing town halls, virile towers, and formidable Conditieri. And Lasansky emphasizes again and again that a lot of restorations were basically just created out of nowhere in in the name of imagined past authenticity. And this didn't just extend to individual buildings, it also extended to entire towns. The fascist state wanted public spaces to call back to what they imagined to be an authentic Italian past. Oftentimes, these towns made their way into the various promotional and propaganda films, which, with careful use of camera work and editing, transformed what had been a modern area with a mixture of classical medieval renaissance and modern architecture into something that just portrayed a town frozen in idealized time again from lesinski's towers and tourist of course this idea of cultural continuity was artificially constructed not only was it forced through edited cinematography, but it was also made emphatic through a series of reconstruction and restoration projects undertaken during the twenties and thirties, eager to promote a sense of italianita that is Italianness. The fascist government encouraged towns such as San Gimigano to medievalize their historic centers by restoring buildings and spaces to their so-called original and native form at some sites. This assumed an ephemeral transformation. This was the case for the celebrations held for the 1930 reintroduction of the medieval style Calico Storico in Florence, where a procession of several hundred individuals dressed in historic costumes, paraded through the city, decorated with medieval-style flags, banners, and festoons. There are still, to this day, Roman and Renaissance sites in Italy that were restored by fascists, but that restoration often meant invention? and it often meant illuminating other history. It meant building something that reflected their idea of the past, as opposed to a more evidence-based view of what the past was. This is very important for any regime that wants to bolster its legitimacy through nationalism. At the very beginning of this series, I talked about the idea of nations and nationalism in general, and fascism as an extreme form of nationalism. In episode one, I briefly mentioned a political scientist, Benedict Anderson, who sketched out the origins of modern nationalism in his book, Imagined Communities. Now, the most famous part of that text is when Anderson talks about the three key tools to creating the nation, the census, the map, and museum. You quantify the nation with a census. You say who's in and who's out. You give it space and form with the map. You say, this is where we are, and this is what we own. But then with that third tool, the museum, you give it a sense of rootedness and continuity. You take something that had been nebulous or undefined, maybe even a decade or so ago, and you give it a story. Museums, monuments, artifacts, shared holidays, and iconography that signified a past, all of it creates the nation. Even in somewhere like Italy, which, once again, less than a century before Mussolini, hadn't been a nation. Italy was just what you called a region. The idea of Italianness that wasn't even a thing. But by recreating history in a way that served their agenda, the Italian fascists were able to make Italianness a thing. They were able to make Italianita and Romanita something that people actually felt and believed in when they looked upon so-called authentic Roman ruins. And you might be wondering, why does this matter? You might be wondering, who cares if the fascists got some stuff wrong about history? Sure, they might have trashed some Baroque buildings, but really, why is it important? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons. It's important because they were wrong, provably wrong, about a lot of what they said about history, and that bothers a guy like me. And also because... This view of history informed policy. The nation that the fascists imagined was not a peaceful one. It was not a docile one. The nation that they imagined was one that was heir to the Roman Empire, Augustus's Roman Empire. That was a nation that was expansive and that was militarily dominant and that would seek out other lands to conquer. And fascist Italy did exactly that. Next week... We're going to see all of this Roman Empire stuff. It's not going to be just rhetoric. It's not going to be just symbols. It's going to be a very real war with Ethiopia. This is an independent podcast. We are entirely dependent upon you guys. You. Yes, you. Listening right now. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Sign up for a monthly donation. That would be awesome of you. Uh, Also, go to iTunes. Ratings, reviews. Those are very good. Uh, Give us a follow on social media. Uh, facebook.com slash weird history podcast. And I am on Twitter at Joe Streckert. And here's the thing. You can use social media to talk to me. Like, if you have a question, you can send me a message on Facebook. You can at me on Twitter. I'll probably answer you. And I always like hearing what people think. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs)